Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know if you've come across um, Steve Brady. He's an English minister, uh, once a a regular speaker at the the Keswick Convention. He was the former principal of a, a Bible college in Dorset. I've heard him speak on a few occasions. He's a very gifted communicator of God's word. And Steve once shared the, the, rather, the rather amusing story of going to the theatre with his wife to see the popular musical show Singing in the Rain. Now, any of you have seen the film or if you've had the privilege of seeing it in theatre, you'll know that the high point, if you like, of the film or the production is when the song Singing in the Rain comes on. And there's that dance routine with the umbrella and around the lamppost. And when it's performed on stage, one of the highlights for the audience is that if you're sitting stage right in the front rows, you're going to get soaked. And so often, if you, if you see it in theatre, people go there, you know, wrapped up for the occasion. They take their own umbrellas. And uh, Steve recalls when he was at the theatre with his wife, watching this show, how when the song came on, everybody in the auditorium, especially in the front rows, started enthusiastically singing singing along. We're singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling. I'm happy again. Everybody was so happy and cheerful, singing and swaying. And then, after the curtains closed and the auditorium began to empty, Steve noticed that as people headed outside, there was in actual fact a real storm. And there was in actual fact torrential rain. And ironically, what he observed is no one was singing anymore. No one was swaying. And you know, if you think about it, That's a perfect picture of what you and I can be like as Christians. We come to church in the comfort and the safety of this building. We sing our hearts out as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God in praise with gusto and conviction. But then the real storms of life come. And we too, like those people can find ourselves silent. And brothers and sisters, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Like singing in the rain, it's an entertaining piece of um, theater. It's an entertaining song. But when we sing the rock-solid theological truths, they're intended to help us, not just in the good times, but especially in the tough times. The songs we sing in church are songs that are are, are not just for Sundays, they're for Monday through Sunday, every day, every year, every decade, every century, every generation. That's one of the reasons why I want us to focus our attention this morning on Psalm 46. Because this is a song for the moment. As our world is falling apart, you know, it's two years next week that Britain 
entered into national lockdown. And then just under two weeks ago, Eastern Europe has fallen into a state of war. And what do we need at this tough time? We need God's word. We need God's songs, which are divinely designed to comfort us and give us confidence when the world is falling apart. Now, let's just dive straight into this psalm. If you look down at Psalm 46, you'll notice it falls into three sections. Stanza 1, stanza 2, stanza 3. So I've got three points. Number 1, God's protection. Number 2, God's presence. Number 3, God's power. So read with me verses 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now right at the outset of the psalm, we see that as God's people, we have reason for confidence in God. Now if you know the Psalter, you know that there are many other psalms that don't start like this. They actually start with the psalmist's predicament. I'm sinking. I need your help. Cry from the psalmist's hearts from the depths. Not so with this psalm. This psalm starts with a focus on God. God is our refuge and strength. And there's a practical lesson, I think, right there for us. When times grow tough, we must learn to lift our eyes beyond ourselves, beyond our circumstances, And we must learn to look to Almighty God. Why? Well, because as verse 1 says, He is for us. He, He is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The word refuge there is straightforward. It means a place of safety and shelter and sanctuary. Just as, just before the, the Ukrainian, um, Ukraine was invaded by the Russians, the Ukrainian officials were telling the citizens and residents of Ukraine, you must find out where your closest place of refuge is. For some of them, that meant the basement of their home or the basement of local shopping centers or government buildings. For others of them, it meant metro stations. You need to know where your place of safety and shelter is. For 11 nights now, many Ukrainians have spent their evenings in metro stations, in basements, as a temporary place of shelter from the bombs and the missiles and the bullets. But when the psalmist here says, God is our refuge, He's saying he is our place of safety and shelter. And notice that the psalmist isn't inviting us to run to a place. He's inviting us to run to a person. He's inviting us to to, to turn to God. And in the fullness of scriptural revelation, you and I know that we must actually take our refuge in the person of God's own son who came into this world to rescue us and redeem us, not from the of war, but 
but from the wrath of Almighty God. And Christ Jesus came into this world not to be for us a a temporary shelter from danger, but our eternal shelter. Our eternal sanctuary. If you're in Christ, if you've taken refuge in Him, you're in Him and He is in you. And Romans 8 would say, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The psalmist says, God's our refuge, but he's also our strength. You see, in troubled times, what happens is our strength gets sapped. Powerless in the face of crisis. Weak. And our God delights to give strength to his people. God helps protect us. In the New Testament, God's power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul would say, I would boast all the more gladly about my weakness because Christ's power rests in me. When I'm weak, he is strong. And then the psalmist says in verse 1, God is a very present help in trouble. Now, The Hebrew here is is, is wonderful because it says we have a help that can be found when we need it. You see, the amazing thing about God is, is he is, he's readily available. He's easily accessible. You don't need to book an appointment. You don't need to let his secretary know. No, 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 you've got instant access through Christ into the presence of God by prayer. Some people, even Christian people, find themselves asking in times of great turmoil and in times of great personal suffering, where is God? Samus answer, he's near to you. Very present help in times of trouble. He's close to you. And of course, the, the response to that is, but I don't feel his presence. Well, our feelings are never reliable gauges of the truth and the reality of God's word. But his word is trustworthy and true, and he says to us here, he is very present to help us. Now, now I must make clear, because it could easily, one could easily misunderstand this verse and think, if God is our protector, if he's a refuge in our strength and a very present help, then are, are we going to be exempt and from, from trials and troubles? Of course not. We're not immune from life in this fallen world. This verse is reminding us that God is the one who protects us when the trials and the troubles come. Hence the reason we ought to have confidence in him. In fact, look then at verse 2. First word, therefore. My professor would always say, if you see a therefore, what's it there for? What's this therefore, therefore? Because the first statement, the opening statement, says we ought to have confidence in God. Therefore, in light of what he's just said, this is what it should look like. We will not fear. Because God is our refuge and our strength and a very present help in trouble, we will not fear. Here's the logic of faith. 
because of who God is, because of God's greatness and God's protection, we as his people need not fear. You see the cause and effect relationship between who God is and our lives? And what's fascinating, just just to make the point, in the verses that follow, the psalmist emphasizes the world in absolute chaos. The earth gives way. The mountains are moved into the heart of the sea. Its waters roar and foam. The mountains tremble at its swelling. This is tremendous upheaval. This is hyperbolic language in so many ways because it's like the world is falling apart. But we know what the psalmist says in Psalm 93. The earth is established and it shall not be moved. The picture that the sons of Korah are painting here for us is of the worst possible earthly danger. The destruction of the world itself. And he's saying this, this to us so that he can convey the idea and we need not fear. His argument is from the greater to the lesser. If this world falls apart, you don't need to fear. And so what does that mean for your personal suffering and your personal setbacks and your personal struggles? You do not need to fear. The psalmist has just made this reasoned estimation that God is greater than all the chaos of this world. You know, when I was reading, I read the word Selah appears three times in the psalm at the end of it. We don't know what it means in Hebrew. It may have been a musical note given for the, 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 the choir master, as it were. Some people think it means pause, stop, reflect on what you've just been singing. Stop and pause on this. God is the one who delights to protect his people when the world is falling apart. When your life is falling apart. God's protection is worthy of our attention. And see when he says, therefore we will not fear. The psalmist is saying this. If you believe verse 1, it ought to make a difference to your life. If you sing this song, if your theology sings, if you're orthodox, then there's going to have to be orthopraxy. Right living. So what does that look like? What does it look like to have fearless confidence in tough times and in chaotic and challenging circumstances? Maybe I can hold up our brothers and sisters in Ukraine as an illustration. The last two weeks, and I suspect many of you, like me, have on your social media seen footage of Christians singing in the metro stations and on kitchen tables. He will hold me fast. Many, no doubt, have read the articles of Christian pastors in Ukraine. One, two, two, the you can, you can go and read on the, the Gospel Coalition website. This is what one of them said. How should the church respond when there is a war? I'm convinced that if the church is not relevant in a time of crisis, then it is not relevant in a time of peace. We believe God is with us. 
In light of that, here's what he says. We have decided to stay both as a family and as a church family. When this is over, the citizens of Kiev will remember how Christians have responded in their time of need. And while the church may not fight like the nation, we still believe we have a role to play in the struggle. We will shelter the weak, serve the suffering, and mend the broken. And as we do, we offer the unshakable hope of Christ and his gospel. While we may feel helpless in the face of such a crisis, as we stay, we pray the church in Ukraine will faithfully trust the Lord and serve our neighbors. Brothers and sisters, that's what it looks like to have fearless confidence in the face of troubled times. Question. Do you, do I, have a deep, unshakable confidence in who our God is? Do you and I know that He is our eternal, permanent refuge? He's the one who gives us strength. He's the one who's there, always there to help us. Does your theology make a difference? To your life. You might sing it. Do you live it? Now let's look at point two. God's presence. Verses four through seven. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations raise, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Now, if verses 2 and 3 have this, paint this picture of waters as menacing, then verse 4 of stanza 2 does the complete opposite. We suddenly shift from a, sea, a scene of raging seas to a life-giving river whose sweet streams make glad the city of God. Now, what's been referred to here? City of God? Ah, Jerusalem, right? Yep. Problem. A city on a hill. Jerusalem doesn't have a river that runs through it. Question. What, was the son, what were the sons of Korah thinking when they penned this? And so the, the biblical theologians that help us, they say they were looking back to the original creation and to the first temple. Do you know where the first temple was? The Garden of Eden. And what does Genesis chapter 2 verse 10 say? A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. Life-giving to paradise. But then they're looking forward and in Ezekiel chapter 47 and then in Revelation chapter 22 verses 1 and 2 we see that in the new creation in the end time temple there will be a river. Remember what it says in Revelation 22, verse 1 and 2? A river flows out from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the A. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. 
Now here, here's this beautiful picture. And the question is, what is it trying to symbolize? God's life-giving presence. The psalmist here is highlighting God's life-giving presence. And the beautiful thing is God's life-giving presence makes his people glad. You know who you and I are? Because of the Holy Spirit? We're the temple of the living God. He dwells within us. That he's come and saved us because we've trusted in his son and now he's indwelt us with his spirit. And, and, and brothers and sisters, here, here's the wonder of the gospel is God's presence makes us glad. If I can put it like this, it, it fills us with pleasure. Just so you know it's God's presence, just look at what it says in the verses that follow. It says, God is in the midst of her. It's God's presence that is special to this holy city. And I don't know if it's ever struck you that when you read through the, the Psalms especially, God's presence is always associated, not, not exclusively, with joy. Psalm 16 verse 11. In your presence, there is the fullness of joy and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore psalm 21 verse 6 god make us glad with with the joy of your presence so here's here's a question soul searching question does your soul know the deep lasting meaningful life-giving pleasure of knowing and spending time in the presence of god Can you say with the psalmist who said this, better is one day in your presence than a thousand elsewhere. You know my favorite day of the week? Today. The first day of the week. The Lord's Day. Gathering with God's people in God's presence to sing God's praise and to receive God's ministry through his word. Can I ask you a question? When, can I ask you another question? When was the last time you enjoyed being a Christian? When was the last time you just loved, relished, delighted being in the presence of God? Or has coming to church become a dull duty, drudgery, just to bring yourself here? Has believing in Christ, instead of being the deep delight of your soul, has it become Ascribing just a set of doctrines. You see, and especially if you're a young person here, listen up, right? One of the greatest dangers is that we, is that we miss the heart of it. The joy of God's presence and His salvation is our strength and our delight. You know, when I was a young Christian, right? Uh, No, when I was a young person, having grown up in a church, I quickly imbibed this worldview or lie. The only place I will get pleasure is apart from God. So, So I would go looking for pleasure in all the wrong places and even in all the wrong people. And then when I became a Christian, I came to understand 
that was such a bad lie. True, lasting, ultimate, life-giving pleasure is found through knowing his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you ever read Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 3, what he considered gain, he counted loss. He spoke of knowing Christ as his unsurpassable greatness and joy. And so if you're here, and perhaps you're not yet a Christian, don't believe the lie. Come and rest and confess and trust in Christ and spend the rest of your life enjoying his presence. He'll satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. You are made for him. The Catechism puts it like this. Our chief end is to glorify and enjoy him. C.S. Lewis put it like this. God, in commanding us to glorifying him, is inviting us to enjoy him. That's the offer of salvation. Come and enjoy this God. Now we need to move quickly because taking too much time. God will help her when morning dawns. Now I love that little phrase, easy to read over. God's help, when does it come? In the morning. There's a true sense, a daily sense. God's mercies are new every morning, fresh every morning, because great is his faithfulness. But if you know the Bible, again, biblical theology, Old Testament, massive act of salvation, Exodus. God rescues his people from slavery and bondage in Egypt. God's people wander in the wilderness as they make their way to the promised land. As they've got the Red Sea in front of them, they've got the Egyptians behind them. Moses raises up his staff, the waters open, the people pass through. God covers the Egyptians at the break of dawn. In the New Testament, When is Christ's salvation victorious? On the cross, it is finished. But third day, early morning, see what a morning, what a glorious day, Christ, when he emerges from the grave. Here's the confidence of God's people. God's salvation comes on God's timing. And when it comes, it comes when we're least expecting it. Now, now, now look at how his salvation comes in this case. It says the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. And how does it come? God utters his voice and the earth melts. As we've been thinking about God's presence, we, we, we come now, we're going to be thinking about God's power just as we wrap this up. And, it, and it's just made so clear to us. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts, that is the Lord of angel armies, is with us. And then he just adds, if you want to know God's presence, his power, here's the amazing thing. The reason we can know it is because he's the God of Jacob. Remember Jacob? Deceiver, liar, unworthy, undeserving, yet God's covenant was for him. And it's for anyone here who's undeserving, unworthy. No, 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 we need to wrap up. God's power. Verse 8, come behold the works of the Lord. He has brought desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. You know what's fascinating about this final stanza? He starts to speak to us about the confidence we should have in God. One, because of his past works. Come see, come behold the works he's done. Desolation he's brought. 
But do you know why it's for? Because when we live in the present, God's going to do a future work that is glorious. Now, where do you think this war in Ukraine is heading? World War Three? Nuclear war? President Zelensky and the army, will they win? Overcome Putin and his forces? Will NATO get involved? Answer, we don't know. But guess what? Here's what we do know. We know the end. Here's the end. He, God, makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns the chariots with fire. There is coming a day when Christ will come and he will end this war. He will end all wars. Do you know what that means? Here's the picture that the psalmist wants us to have. AK-47s. Semi-automatic machine guns. Thermobaric rockets. He will break. Nuclear warheads. He will shatter. He will burn every tank and every armored vehicle. This is a powerful picture of God's forceful disarmament. You know, there's loads of talk among world leaders. Let's, let's get rid of Trident. God with a word will do it. There will come a time, as Revelation 21 says, when there will be no more wars, no more suffering, no more death. And then we come to the climax of the psalm. For nine verses, we've been reading the psalm in third person. The sons of Korah speaking to us, and now God speaks. Be still and know that I am God. And you've heard that verse thousands of times, and and often that verse... You've maybe got in a plaque in your wall at home. The pastoral application is be still in his presence and meditate, but I'm not sure that's what this verse is saying. This verse is saying God is speaking to the nations. Be still and know that I am God. Stop your objections. Stop your speaking. Stop all your arguments and your opposition. Derek Kinner puts it like this. Be still is not in the first place comfort for the harassed, but a rebuke to a restless and turbulent world. Quiet and be still. Do you remember who else said those words? Jesus on the boat with his disciples in the storm. In the eye of a storm, be still. You see, this psalm finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And, and the end is, uh, he will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in all the earth. God's purpose in all things is that he will have the glory, the final word. So here's, here's, here's the amazing thing. Because he is our protector, we should turn to him. Because of his presence fills us with pleasure, we should delight in him. Because of his power, we should look to him. We should wait for him. We should pray to him. Hasten the day when you come and you make all wars end. Come, bring the new heavens and the earth. The river that makes glad the city of our God. Another pastor in Ukraine, I'll finish with this. 
wrote an article on the Gospel Coalition, Benjamin Morrison. He's American in Ukraine. Quoting Psalm 103, he said, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Then he says this, But that's not always easy to remember when bombs are exploding. And so, we call for an impromptu evening of worship. We had a sweet time stirring one another up, singing the truth deep into our hearts. I started with the picture of those at the theater singing enthusiastically. And then in the storm of life, silence. Here's the application for us. Can we go and sing this song for the rest of this week, for the rest of our eyes? Our God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. That's the headline for your hearts and your minds. Go sing it. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the amazing privilege you give us as your people to have a fearless confidence in you. We are not to fear the calamities of this earth. We're to fear you. We're to see and behold you in all your greatness and all your goodness and all your protection and all your presence and all your power. And so we behold you, our great God. We pray, God, that what we believe would impact how we live. And as a church family and even in our personal lives, help us to sing this song of praise to you. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's conclude our time and let's sing the gospel and the great hope and promises we have. And in Christ's